I'm Anthony Graves, Texas Exoneree number 138, and you're listening to Smart Justice Reform Podcast. Yeah, man, so back in 1992, uh, a terrible, terrible crime taking place in this small county called Somerville, Texas. Uh, an entire family was murdered. Six people, they were, they were brutally stabbed. Uh, one was shot, uh, beaten, gasoline was poured all over their bodies. House was burned down in an obvious attempt, I guess, to cover up the crime. So imagine, this had become like, like, like a, a nightmare to a small community. And so much so that they were, they were outraged because this had never happened, you know, in a small town like that. Uh, as a matter of fact, the mayor came out the next day in the papers and said that whoever had done that crime didn't even deserve to have a trial. They should be caught and hanged. And that's sort of the way they proceeded with the case. Because a week later they had this funeral, right? And, and just imagine, this funeral was six caskets in a gymnasium. And, 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 and I mean, the whole town is there. And just imagine the outrage, all the sadness. And, and this young man showed up and, and he had burns and bandages over his head as though he'd been in a fire. So immediately he became a person of interest, right, to the, to the Texas Rangers that was there. So uh, once the funeral was over, the, the Texas Rangers approached this young man and asked if he could uh, speak with them. He agreed. And so uh, they followed him home. And once he got home, you know, he got in the vehicle with them and they took him to the DPS office. Now, uh, along the way of taking this young man to the DPS office, uh, uh, he see a Jeep. Uh, so he say he see a, seen a Jeep with four young black men in it. And I want you to remember this part of the story because he said he seen a Jeep with four young black men in it as they were taking him to the DPS office to interrogate him, okay? Once he get to the DPS office, they start interrogating this man. And the interrogation lasts over 14 hours. Now, don't nobody know all that he said over the 14 hours that he was interrogated. But, but at the end of it, they told him that they didn't think that he could do this crime by himself because of all the people that were murdered, which was four children under the age of 10, a teenage daughter, and a 45-year-old grandmother. The children were supposed to have been asleep. Everyone was asleep, I think, except for the, he, he, they said the grandmother. Anyway, so this young man, they telling him that they don't believe that he could have done this crime by himself. And if he could just give them the name of someone, they would let him go. They really didn't want him. So thinking that they were telling him the truth, in that Jeep that I was telling you about, he thought he seen four young African-American men in it. And one he thought was me. So off the top of his head, he called my name and said that I was involved in a crime with him, which, which it wasn't true because this guy didn't even really know me, okay? He was, he was married to a cousin of mine that I had grew up with, but we was no longer close, but you know, we're still cousins. So I guess she hadn't told him about her family tree and how she grew up and everything. Uh, so that's how he come to know my name. Uh, you having more conversation with me right now than this man ever had in, my, in his life with me, okay? And yet, this man was able to call my name and said that I'd done a crime with him. Ended up giving them seven different stories that night because they needed a story to fit their scenario. So he gave them around seven different stories. And after that, they turned around and charged him with captain murder, arrested him, and then that was a knock on my door the next morning, right? Hours later. 
But it, it, it wasn't the police, it, it was my neighbor. And my neighbor was t came on to tell me, he, he said, hey man, police looking for you, you know, as I opened up the door. And uh, I asked him, I said, hey Mike, what the police looking for me for? He said, I don't know, man, but they just asked me, is that your vehicle out there? And so to make a long story short, I thanked him because I was trying to think, you know, if the police looking for me, then maybe they went down to my auntie's house because, you know, every day I go to my auntie's house. So I'm thinking maybe they went to my auntie's house, right? So I go into the, back into the house and I call my auntie and I asked, I said, Amy, uh, Mike just came by and said that the police is looking for me. Uh, have they came uh, down here? She said, no, why would the police be looking for you? I said, I have no idea, but Mike said they're looking for me. So she tell me, she said, well, won't you call the police station and find out, right? So I, we hung up and I thought better yet, I'll go outside and I'll go look for the police, you know, because I have nothing to hide and, and I'm curious where's the, why the police looking for me, you know? So I put a shirt on and I go downstairs and I go outside to look for the police, right? Now, now, if you don't hear if you, if nothing else, if you don't hear nothing else that I say in this podcast for the next hour or so, hear this, and this is fair warning. Never go look for the police, okay? Just don't never do that. Make them do their job, right? Because because I went looking for the police, and I didn't get back home until after six thousand six hundred and eighty days. Two execution dates, a wrongful conviction, watching many men get murdered around me, almost up to 413. I, this became my worst nightmare for 18 and a half years of my life. And, and let me tell you why. So when I, when I met with the police officer, I, I come out downstairs, he pulls up, and I'm asked, he, he, he sees me, he gets out. I stop. He asks me my name, and I tell him. And he said, hey, man, I've been told to come pick you up and take you downtown. Some officers want to talk to you. I said, man, can you, can you tell me what fuck? Because I don't know why, he's, why he want to take me downtown. So I began to think, do I have a ticket out? You know, because that's as far as my mind could go. And he said, well, I can't tell you, but once I get you down there, they'll talk to you. And I said, okay. By this time, my neighbor Mike comes out being nosy, which I'm glad he was. And he said, hey, man, What's up? I say, Mike, uh, this officer said I have to go to the police station for something, but my mom is on the way home. Could you let her know that I'm coming? I just had to go to the police station, but I should be right back, right? Because I'm thinking, well, if it's a ticket, that ain't gonna take long. He said, okay, so the officer handcuffed me, you know, we get in the, in the cruiser and, and he takes me down to the, jail, to the jail. And in my mind, man, I'm just, I'm embarrassed because we're going down the middle of the street downtown to the main street it's a small town so we're going down the main street and everybody's trying to look to see who's in the police car and i'm squatting down in the back because i'm embarrassed you know i don't even know why i'm in a police car but then we get to the police station and you know we get into the in, inside and they take me to the booking room and ask me to take everything out of my pockets right and i, I comply and they tell me to have a seat so i go and i sit down and I'm watching as officers just walking in and out, but nobody's saying anything to me. So I'm, I'm, I, I, I begin to ask the officers that were coming in, hey man, can somebody tell me why I'm here? Because I, I just didn't know why I'm sitting in the police station. And no one still would respond to me. So about 20, 25 minutes into the whole thing, uh, four Texas Rangers and a magistrate walks in. 
and they asked me to stand up, right? And uh, asked me if my name was Anthony Graves, and I told them yes. And so the magistrate, she began to read me my rights. You know, you have a right to remain silent. Uh, whatever you say can and will be used against you. You know, some of you might know this here already, but in case you don't, that's what they do. They read you your rights, right? And one thing I want to say about that, when they tell you, we're doing the process, uh, the process of reading you your rights, that what you say can and will be used against you, please, folks, listen to that. Because they're telling you right off the top that whatever you say to them, they're going to use it against you. And we can get into that later in another podcast story. But, but what I'm saying now, that when they tell you that whatever you, you say to them can and will be used against you, please, the only thing you should say to them is that you want an attorney. That is it. Nothing else. You want an attorney. Now, as I go along in my story, you'll understand why that is so important. I'm not talking about being guilty or being innocent. I'm talking about your rights, your constitutional rights, your right to an attorney. That's the only person you want to talk to when someone who's wearing a law enforcement uniform pulls you over for questioning. Okay? Now, let's get back to the story. So anyway, when I'm in the station, they, they start reading me my rights. And then she tell me that I've been charged with capital murder. Capital murder? Me? I mean, I'm not no criminal. I mean, are you sure? Which, this was my reaction. And, and the thing about that is during this time, is that, that's what they call an intake video, right? So they're, they're videotaping you when they're first booking you in. So, but now we never see this videotape because had we seen this videotape, Anyone that was sitting in the jury box would have realized that I had no clue about what they were talking about. So they hid this tape. That's called exculpatory evidence. They withheld that from us because they knew that if a jury would have seen my reaction, it would have known that this young man does not, does not know anything about a crime. So once they told me that I've been charged with capital murder and uh, they see my reaction, they asked me if I would like to talk to them. And of course I want to talk. Anytime you're innocent, you want to talk because you don't feel like you have nothing to hide. But once again, you have to beat back that impulse because right now it should be about your constitutional rights, your right to an attorney. You don't want to talk to nobody but an attorney. I promise you that. Because once again, what you say can and will be used against you. That's very important, okay? I know when you're innocent, you just feel the urge that you can tell it because you ain't got nothing to hide. But if they're seeking to convict you, if they're seeking to put it on you, then everything you use, they're gonna, everything you say to them, they're gonna try to use it against you. They'll make it look like you lying. They have tricks up their sleeves that you haven't begun to understand. So once again, here we are, they're asking me if I wanna talk to them. Now, the information I'm providing you today, I didn't know that back then. I was the one that was innocent and just felt like I just, hey man, look, I don't have nothing to hide. So what I do, I go into the interrogation room and I talk with them, man. And this lasts all the way up until the next morning. So they interrogated me over 12, 13 hours, okay? And I'm telling them the truth, man, they don't wanna hear none of that. All they're trying to do is get me to say that I did a crime that I did not do to the point where I'm crying now because it's like the truth is falling on deaf ears. You know, all they want me to do is say I did something and I was refusing to do that because we already have a system that's in place and broken because we have now made it a plea bargaining system. So many people are afraid to stand up for themselves that they're 
actually pleading the stuff that they didn't do, okay? This does not help our criminal justice system. If someone is accusing you of crime, and it's up to them to prove it, simply put, quit pleading to stuff you did not do. It doesn't help the next person that comes behind you. And so here I am, they're asking me to talk, and I'm going and I'm talking like I told you. I don't, I'm not understanding this whole concept of even if you're innocent, you should keep quiet and just ask for an attorney. I just want to talk and let them make them understand that I don't, I don't know anything about this and, and I can go home. But I don't know that that's not where they are. They've already made up their mind that they're going to put this case on me. So me talking to them only helps them be able to pick through what I said to make a stronger case against me. Because like I told you, whatever you say can and will be used against you. So here I am, I'm green going talking, and we talking over 14 hours. And now I'm crying because I'm trying to tell them, man, that I don't know anything about this crime. Okay? So after that, they ask, I tell them, I say, hey, man, I'll, I'm willing to take a truth serum test. I'm willing to take a lie detector test. I'm willing to take any test you have because I have nothing to hide. I'm innocent. And man, when I told them that, they got excited. They was like, okay, you'll be willing to take a lie detector test? I said, yeah, I'll take a lie detector test. I said, okay, well, we're gonna put you in this holding cell and we're gonna set up a lie detector test in another uh, city, which was Houston, like an hour from where I lived. I lived in Brenham, Texas. And uh, so they put me in this cold holding cell and I, I just wanna get it over with. So, so it's not even bothering me yet that I'm in jail for something I didn't do because they're telling me that they're gonna take me, give me a lie detector test. I know I can pass a lie detector test because I'm innocent, right? Oh man, I was just so naive and stupid about how the games that they play. So anyway, about three, four hours into being in, in custody, they now have decided they're gonna take me to Houston and give me a lie detector test. So I'm excited, man, let's get this over with because I got plans, you know, I'm supposed to be meeting with my lady friend later on this evening, so I wanna get this over with. So we get down to Houston, and they had this polygraph operator. For the first time now, I've seen another black person. Up until this point, I've only seen white men in big hats, the Texas Rangers. And now I'm seeing this black man who's a polygraph operator, right? So I get a little comfortable, you know, because this man should understand, right? Now, little do I know, he works for the Texas Rangers, okay? I'm just thinking he's an independent polygraph operator, but he actually works for the Texas Rangers. And, and this is a setup that I'm just walking right into. So we get there and they hook me up to this polygraph machine and sit me in this chair and make me face this door. And they start, he asked me three questions. Is your name Anthony Graves? Yes, sir. Is Anthony Graves your name? Yes, sir. Did you have anything to do with this uh, murder? No, sir. Is your name Anthony Graves? Yes, sir. In about five minutes, it was over with. So I was relieved, you know? I told the truth. Man, I was like, I got up, I was like, man, I'm glad that's over with, I'm ready to go home now. And, and this is when I knew, this is when I knew, man, these folks ain't trying to hear nothing. These folks are trying to set me up. The polygraph operator said, not so fast, man, not so fast. I said, what you talking about? He said, you didn't pass the polygraph. And I just looked at him like, are you serious? 
I mean, you really serious. And by this time, three or four of the Texas Rangers, they bust into the room and now they starting to play good cop, bad cop with me. They grab me, twist my arm all up my back, like they finna break my arm and run me out of, this, out, of, out of the room while this other one comes in, intervenes, like he's trying to save me, right? So I'm, I'm upset, I'm crying because, one, I'm crying because this, this fat ass officer is, 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 is harming me and I knew on the street he wouldn't be able to do that. But they playing this good cop, bad cop with me for some stuff I don't know anything about. So, so once, once the other officer intervened and he gets and he said, hey man, let me talk to him. I'm, I'm, I'm now, I'm, I'm, I'm literally crying because I'm just very upset. So we go into this other room, he sit me down, he tried to tell me, hey man, look here, I want to help you, you know, uh, but you need to talk to me, tell me everything you know, and I'm, I'm going to do my best to do whatever I can for you and all of this la that stuff, right? And I'm telling him through my tears, hey man, I don't know anything about this crime, man, because I refuse to lie on myself, right? So after this, this back and forth, finally the Texas Ranger walked up to me, the lead Texas Ranger. He looked me in my eyes. I'll never forget what he said to me, man. He looked me in my eyes, he said, Mr. Gray, I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't believe you did this crime. But if you don't put something on Carter for me, we're gonna put this whole thing on you. And if you're actually innocent, then don't let no grass grow on your grave. Then he looked at the other officer and he told him, now get him out of here. And I said, so I have to go to jail for something I didn't do? And he turned and he walked off on me. They took me to jail that night, about an hour, hour and a half away to the town, uh, the county that the crime had happened in. County I ain't never been, I've never been to, a little small town, Milam County, you know? And I, I was in this little old cage that they put in the center of the jail. I am, I am now being treated as the worst person on earth for something I know absolutely nothing about. Right, so they put me in here, and all I want to do is call my mom, because up until this point, I haven't called and talked to no one. And I know my mom is worried because I know Mike told her that I had to go to the police station. So I just want to call my mom, and it's about 2 or 3 in the morning now, right? They've had me in custody since 11 a.m. the day before. So it's about 3 a.m. now, and I'm asking them, can I just call my mom? So finally, the officer said, hey, man, let him talk to his mother. So I called my mom about 3 of that morning, and I just, I just told her what was going on. And it was like an out of no. It was just, it was just surreal that I'm being held captive by the state of Texas for something I didn't do, and they're talking about capital murder. Totally beyond my comprehension at this time. And so I stayed in jail that that night. The following morning, they came and got me and took me to another jail. Now this jail looked like a dog kennel. As a matter of fact, it was once a dog kennel. It was a ten cell jail. They had converted it in from a dog kennel to 10 cells. And it's like two to three people can be in one cell. But ironically, they had already arrested and charged Mr. Carter who had lied on me. And they had him in the jail by the time I got there. Ironically, they had moved everybody around and put the cell right across from Carter. They left it open for me. And just, 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 just think about that, right? I'm talking about the games they play. So, so, so everybody been bunched up in the cells and this other cell is just totally available for me, which happens to be right across from Mr. Carter, okay? So when I get into the cell, they finally put me into the cell and I walk up to the door, the first person I see is this guy who been burned and got these bandages on his face, right? And so that's Carter. Now I don't know him, but I know him, I know that's him, right? So. I, 
I don't know how to approach this man because I don't know if he's crazy or what, because this man just said I did something with him and he don't even know me. So when I seen him, I walk up to, I say, I, I, I just asked him, I say, man, do you really think I did a crime with you? He just shook his head like that. I say, man, please, man, for my mom's sake and my children's sake, would you just tell these people the truth? And he just nodded his head and he walked off, okay? So I was like, wow, that was a trip. He didn't say nothing to me. He just nodded his head and he walked off. So now here I'm in jail. I've just asked the man who lied on me to please tell these people the truth. And I'm thinking that that's all need to be said and I can go home. Man, I stayed in jail two and a half years waiting to go to trial for a case I didn't even know anything about. Three weeks into, the, in, into staying in jail, they gave me an indictment for capital murder. People I don't know don't know me. I'm no criminal. They, I mean, it's just crazy. And so I'm sitting here, and the officer came up to me and said, Mr. Graves, I got some papers for you. And I walk up in the indictment papers. Wow, man. I tell you something. At that moment, I had been reading the Bible, right? Because now, you know, I'm going to God with this here because, you know, it's out of my control. I've told the truth, and yet it's not helping me at all. So, so I'm reading my Bible at night, right? Because that's where I've been taught, right? So I'm going to my Bible and I'm reading my Bible. And, and, and during the time I'm reading my Bible is when this officer came up and he handed me these, these indictment papers. Man, i never forget. And he told me what they were. Oh, the, the rage that just went through me. Cause I'm cooperating 110%, man. 110% I'm cooperating with you guys. I'm innocent. And yet I get indictment papers. How do you indict me on nothing? That's why grand jury, we have to participate in grand jury. Grand jury shouldn't have just been able to indict me with no evidence. Somebody should have stood up. See, but when we don't participate, that's what happens. They were able to just indict me with no evidence. No evidence. And so I was reading the Bible. And when, when it happened, man, I just wanted to call my attorney. I kept telling him, man, bring me the phone. I want to call my attorney. And then I walked back to my, my bunk, and the Bible was laying there. And I seen it, and I just picked it up, and I threw it in the corner, man. I, I didn't want to have nothing to do with that. Because I've been reading this Bible. I'm innocent. I've been doing all the right things. I'm cooperating. And nothing is happening. They're continually trying to build a case against me. They never sought the truth. They was continuing trying to build this case against me, right? So I'm in this jail, and, and, and my hope went from a system that I believed in to a system was that's trying to take my life, and I was watching it play out in front of me. And everybody was on board because everybody was believing in the system without doing any fact-checking. Everybody was on board. We can't just give the system a blank check like that. There has to be some accountability, some transparency. Nobody asked the question, what do you have on this man? Everybody just assumed that it was the truth. That's our system, man. We give them a blank check and let them write their own amount, man.
And it's costing us our freedoms and our lives for things we didn't do or things that we should, we did, but we should have gotten help for instead of incarceration. This is our system. My story isn't the only story, but I'm here to share with you because I want you to understand the importance of getting involved, importance of being part of the grand jury, the importance of showing up for jury duty, the importance of voting. All of those things could have saved my life. All of those things could have made a bigger difference, man. But, it, but because we take them for granted, because we think that everybody else is gonna do it so we don't have to, my story becomes one of many, you know? I stayed in jail two and a half years, man, asking these people to take me to trial, take me to trial, because up until that point, I believed in the system. I was taught from elementary through high school that we had the best criminal justice system in the world. And all I wanted to do was just get to trial, man, tell my side of the story so I could go home. But let me tell you something, that's not how the system works. Right? That's just not how the system works. Once the system decides that you're their culprit, you're their suspect, they do everything they can to find a way to convict you. No longer is anyone seeking truth. It's all about seeking a conviction. I watched it play out right in front of my eyes. It just blew me away. You know, I just wanted to tell the truth so I could go home. And they just wanted to figure out how to convict me. They weren't even worried about the real killers. They were just trying to convict me, a young African-American man that they knew had no resources to fight them. That's a victory for the system, man. You know, that's why we have such racial disparity today. That's an easy victory. When a young black man walks up into that courtroom and he have no resources. And the system is looking at him. I remember when I finally got my trial after two and a half years and begging them for a trial. I'm, I'm kind of reminded of what my grandma used to always tell me about. Boy, you better be careful what you ask for because you just might get it in this world, right? And I was asking for a trial and asking for a trial and the trial is exactly what I got. Because let me tell you, when uh, they finally took me to trial, we was trying to get a change of venue to another town because I was, you know, we wanted a fair trial, right? Because there had been so much publicity around this case. So we finally got a change of venue. We got a change of venue to this town called Angleton, Texas. Now, what I didn't know at the time was Angleton had some history, a little bit bad history around racism, right? And uh, also, this county had another capital case that they tried, and they moved it to Angleton, Texas. So they had got a conviction in Angleton, Texas on their initial capital case. So they felt like they should go back to that same place, right? And so they took me there for to get a fair trial. But here's the thing, a week, by a week into me being down there in Angleton, Texas, we started looking at the news, the evening news, and here it is, the prosecutor is down there tainting the jury pool by, by talking about the case on the evening news every day and talking about me being guilty. So he was actually trying to win his case in the public before we even got in the courtroom. Now, by the time we get in the courtroom for what, was, what is known as voir dire, picking up the jury, right? So we're sitting here, we got about 100, 120 people 
that are uh, potential jury members that's sitting out there, and we're getting a chance to ask each one of them questions to determine whether or not they qualify for this jury. I never forget, man, my attorney was asking each potential juror, what did they think about his client, Mr. Gray, sitting in here today? And at least seven out of 10 of those jurors would say, well, he must have done something, otherwise you wouldn't have him here. So, so this whole notion of innocent until proven guilty, it's only on paper, okay? Really, it's only on paper because we like to believe in our law enforcement. And if law enforcement brought you in there and said you did something, we wanna think that he's telling us the truth. So we give them a lot of leeway, right? That's not, our, that's not the way it's supposed to work, potential jury members. You're supposed to hold them accountable. Each man is innocent until proven guilty. That's it, you have to make them prove their case. No longer can we just take for granted that they're telling us the truth and that they got the right person. They make mistakes. They made a big one with me, okay? So we going through the whole uh, 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 die process and, and I'm coming to learn the law now because as I hear potential jury members talk about the fact that I must have done something otherwise I wouldn't be here, I start to learn what is now called rehabilitation of the juror in our law. Because what would the judge would do, the judge would ask that same potential juror if they could follow the law. Now, who's gonna sit up there in the courtroom and say they can't follow the law? Let's be honest, right? So they asked the potential juror, who's, who's follow, can he follow the law? And if you say he can follow the law, uh, then if he say he can follow the law, then he's what is known as a rehabilitated juror, okay? So uh, once he's become a rehabilitated juror, then he's qualified to sit on the jury, regardless of what he, uh, his initial statements were. As long as you can follow the law, you're qualified to sit on the jury, right? You're a rehabilitated juror. And so now I ended up with 12 people sitting on my jury who, for the most part, said that I must have done something, otherwise I wouldn't be here, right? And, and, and remind you, I'm supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, okay? So, but another thing I also witnessed is that as black people, African-Americans, Hispanics, but mostly African-Americans, we don't like to sit on juries. And, and white prosecutors are okay with that. They encourage it. They encourage that. But when we was going through our whole vada process, I watched one African-American after another try to find a reason to get off the jury, right? Man, had they sat on that jury, I probably would never experienced this. But they found one reason after another to get off the jury, okay? One even saw because they had the same last name of mine, and I don't know them, they don't know me. They said, well, we might be kin. That, really? And that's how they got off the jury. And, 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 and the prosecutor was okay with that. So, so now I ended up with 12 people that really didn't look like me, except for one. I had one black juror and 12 whites, right? And so my attorney tells me, he say, I'm gonna go back there and see who uh, the former for the juror is gonna be. And I said to him, I said, man, it's gonna be the black man, right? Probably some of you already know why I said that. He said, why you say that? 
said, man, it's gonna be the black man. So he goes back into the jury room. Five minutes later, he comes out and he says, how did you know it was gonna be the black man? And I said to him, I said, man, these folks finna convict me before they even hear the case. And they putting this black man in the front to be the, the face of the jury. So how many times you've seen 11 white people ready to follow one, one black man, unless they know where he's going? He's leading from behind, man. And he don't even realize that. He's the one guilty voter already because of the role they got him playing. Because he cannot be the only one voting not guilty for this black man. So he's gonna, he's gonna criticize me more than anyone. And lo and behold, that's what happened. I watched this, this black man cry as he gave a, verdict, a guilty verdict to the judge. Just cry and gave a guilty verdict. Then I watched him cry as he handed him another piece of paper to kill me for something I did not even do. He didn't even know. He thought he was a leader, but he didn't know he was being followed. He was a follower that day. They had already made their mind up that he was going to be the one that was going to represent our guilty verdict. This is why we have to participate, you know? So I ended up being convicted and sentenced to death. But let me tell you, so there's two parts of it. After the guilt innocence, you go into the punishment phase. So after they convicted me, my attorney came to me and he wanted to know if uh, I wanted to put my uh, family up on the witness stand to talk about my character so it could save my life. You know, he believed in my innocence, but he knew the state would kill me. And I kept telling him, man, I don't want my family to be a part of that. And he was like, well, why, man, you know? And I told him, I said, man, because this is a joke. How you gonna take me from my home? A crime happened in a town I don't even go to. Don't know the family. He just put a crime on me and now I've been convicted and I'm facing death penalty. So man, I don't want my family to be a part of this. But reluctantly, I agreed. And the reason why I agreed because my mom didn't want to do it. So I watched my mom get up there and talk about her son, her oldest son, being the strength of the family. Then I watched my sister get up there and talk about her, her big brother and how her big brother suspended his nightlife to take care of her child while she go to night school. Then I watched my own son get up there. See, my son has sickle cell anemia. And every time he would get sick and have to go to the hospital, you know, I was always there, spend nights with him and everything. So I watched my son get up there and talk about how his dad was his strength and how he needed his dad. And he's begging people who don't even know me or him to save his dad's life. And after that, those people went back into the jury room and an hour and a half later they came back and with no evidence, no evidence, they sentenced me to death. That's the value the criminal justice system places on a young African-American man's life. I was sentenced to death for a crime I knew absolutely nothing about, right? And now I'm on my way to death row. Yeah, so now death row was just a whole nother story altogether, man. Here I was just sentenced to death in front of my family, watching my mom and them, watch me being shackled up and taken out of this, this, this courtroom and putting it back into a little holding cell, right? Now this was on a, a Friday. Come Monday, I was headed to death row, right? Officer taking me down in a vehicle and we get to death row and I see this big tower. I'm like, I'm just in a, I'm just, it's just such a surreal thing to me. So I can't really grasp my mind around the fact that here it was, I was just hoping to go home after telling these people the truth. And instead, three days later, I'm headed to death row. And we get to death row. And it's like, 
It's like they take me inside and they strip me out. And now all of a sudden, they taking they call it taking my dignity. So they strip me out no matter where. If you walk two feet or three, they strip you out. They they search you, right? So so they stripping me out, put me in white jumper with DR on the back of it, death row. Welcome to death row. And I got these two officers, and now they finna escort me down the hallway, right? And as we going down the hallway, there has these these generation gen, these population inmates in the hall, right? Because you got population inmates, and then at the end of the hallway is where death row begin, because it's section off. So we're walking through the population that's part of it, and all of a sudden this young young officer started hollering at the had the population inmates, get against the wall, turn your head. And they didn't want them looking at me. You know, I was, I guess I was the next dead man walking, right? So, so we walking on down the hall, but then they take me into this office where I had to sit and talk with the captain. They're gonna give me some rules and all of that. So I'm sitting talking to the captain and the captain throws me a handbook and everything and tell me that, you know, it's in your best interest to read every rule up in here. You know, we're not gonna babysit you. Uh, you cannot say that you don't know the rules because we just gave you this book and, uh, you know, keep your nose clean. And then they took me out of there and they took me to this, this, this uh, wing called J23. Now J23, the reason why I say that, J23 was the wing where all the bad actors were. Those who just didn't want to follow no rules. They put all of them down there, right? So when we get down there, man, it's loud and, and it's just, it's like, it's like a scene out of a movie, man. It's dirty and dingy. You got wires and barbed wires all over the cells and it was just crazy. And it's just, everybody was, they, was, they, was, they had TV, so it was either gambling and talking noise about the sports and all of this. And, and the guy was telling me that he was taking me up to three row because she had three tiers. So he took me up to three row 10 cell. And I get in three row 10 cell and uh, you know, it's just totally filthy. And, and I gotta now get some, some sort of cleaning, showering, uh, scouring powder and a toothbrush and a rag. And this, I had to clean up this cell. You got feces all over the toilet. You got just, it's just bad, man, just bad. And so I get on my knees and I scrub and clean this cell up for about at least three, four hours, man. And then after that, you know, they came back, they came and brought me a plate, some chicken and dumpling that tastes like, uh, I don't know what that tastes like, dirt and dumplings, dirt dumplings, whatever. But after that, man, here I am on death row. I lay down. They give me these headphones that you can plug into the wall and you can either listen to music or turn the knob and look at the TV that's out there on the, on the run. It's on a pole, it's not in your cell. And so I just take the headphones, put them on, man, turn it on the music and lay in that bunk, take the blanket that they gave me and put it over my head and that's how I laid there for the whole week. I didn't want to talk to nobody. I didn't want to know nothing about this place. I was on death row for somebody I didn't know anything about. And I'm, I'm now living around what society has deemed as the worst of the worst in our, in our lives. And here I am. Man, man, I thought it was just a, just a nightmare. But every day I would wake up in these, behind these bars, you know? And, and all of a sudden though, like a week after I was there, no, a month after I was there, uh, there was a, 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 a attempted escape, right? Uh, seven, some men had tried to escape. No, no, I take that back. Let me digress, because we're going to get to that part. 
I'm gonna tell you about when I no, when I first got there and what they had was some porters, what they called trustees, that was from population and they would work our wing. And so what they would do is they would come pick up our trays after we eat, they would sweep up everything, you know, take get the clothes out of the shower once we they would take us to the shower, clean up the runs and all that, and then they would leave. But they could also pass stuff like magazines or food between us when we're when we call ourselves spreading. That's that's cooking in your cell in a hot pot, right? And and so but you had officers who didn't like that. Now it's up to their discretion. So you have a lot of officers that come on young, you know, want to be wild, want to get something started on the road. And they would add, they would tell the, uh, uh, the, poor, the trustees not to pass none between us. So once those guys realized that, oh man, it all hell broke out. Uh, they, they, they made a plan that the next morning they was going to flood the runs, they were going to start fires, they was just going to run all these porters off because if, they, if they're threatening population porters, then officers have to remove them. So they, the next morning they woke up, man, to flooding. The whole runs were flooding. You just say, like, water just running over the runs like a cascade. And it was like, man, you hear one guy hollering, it's going down, it's going down, you know. And all of a sudden now officers starting to walk in, and they see what's going on. And now they're coming in in ride gear. And as they're walking through, you got uh, inmates throwing cups of urine on them and, and feces and, and all of a sudden now you hear the officers running in on the cells and they beating up, he beating the inmates and bringing them out, handcuffed and putting them on the gurney. They're gassing them, running out. And this is what I'm, I'm, I'm exposed to within a month of being there. And it was like, wow, this is right out of a, out of a movie scene, man. It was just really crazy. They bust TVs out, man. They started fires. And, and by the way, it was cold at that time. And they bust out the windows, man, and now here it is. I'm thinking, okay, y'all mad at the officers, but here it is, we busting out all these windows, and it's cold. We done bust out the TVs, y'all done bust out the windows. It's cold, you can't watch TV. They're not in no hurry. They done cut off all the water. So water just flooding all the runs, man. Feces going down, uh, 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 I mean, it's just crazy. It was so crazy to me. And I'm thinking, this is what I have to live through until I either go home or they kill me. This is my life. I witnessed men killing themselves, hanging themselves. Young men come down there 18, 22 years old, they can't even remember their name, babbling incoherent, cutting their throats, overdosing on their medication. So many men walking around there with mental illness issues, walking like zombies, and yet the state killing everybody. Innocent, guilty, mentally ill, they don't care. They killing everybody. Man, I was there when I witnessed over, I witnessed over 400 executions. You understand what I'm saying? I had to live with that for the rest of my life. 400 executions. Guys that I knew, guys that I watched come down there. I watched these men taking one after one after one, and they were being executed like animals. We were doing it, State of Texas was doing it sometimes twice a day, right? It was just so crazy to me, and this is what I was living with. And, and, and if they wasn't executing you, they were beating someone, they was gassing someone, right? Or someone was hanging themselves. Uh, you know, or someone got bad news that they was getting execution date, you know? Or someone heard that their mother just died. It was just a crazy world that I had to live in for 24 hours. Then in 1999, 1998, Thanksgiving night, that was an attempted escape. Seven men jumped the fence, tried to get away. One of them died, got, got killed. 
Officer shot him. He went into the, he kept running, went into the river. 10 days later, they found him dead, body floating in the, in the water. The other six laid down and they brought them all back, but they executed each one of them, right? And so that's when the state of Texas started playing hard politics and decided that they was gonna move death row to this maximum security facility where we were now housed 23 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, five days a week, 24 hours on the weekend in our little six by nine cage. No television, no telephones, none of that. Just four walls. Four walls that feel like they're closing in on you every day. That's why you hear young men scream out at night, kicking, screaming, beating the doors. They can't take it anymore. This is stuff I'll never forget, man. I'll never forget. And so after all of that time, I stayed a total of a 12 and a half on death row, two and a half in jail by this time. And now my case in 2003, I mean 2006 get overturned by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal. Because now this, you gotta understand, this is the most conservative court in our nation. I'm talking about this court is so conservative that Jesus can come testify for you and they still gonna vote against you, two to one. I promise you, two to one, right? That Jesus would have to appeal. But the point I'm making is that after 18 and a half years, 400 executions, two execution dates myself. And we're gonna talk about that in another segment. I'm gonna talk to you guys about when I received my execution dates, how that felt and how that changed my life. I'll tell you a lot about that because, you know, this journey of us talking about uh, storytelling and, and talking about the criminal justice system, we're just getting started. I know you're interested in this here. So tune in next time, and we're gonna talk about the things that I witnessed on death row. It's gonna blow your mind. So you just heard part of my story. And in upcoming podcasts, I'll tell you more, particularly about uh, the things that I experienced while I was on death row. Uh, very interesting. But this is what I want you to know. My story is not the only story that's out there, right? There are many people who've been greatly impacted by the criminal justice system that have stories that are just as interesting as mine. And we're going to hear those stories on this podcast. We're going to bring people in, and they're going to be sharing uh, these stories because these stories are important. These stories, what we're doing with them, are lifting the voices of people who thought they had lost their voice due to the injustice they had in they had uh, suffered at the hands of our criminal justice system. I'm excited, but this is what I need you to do. I need you to, to go and subscribe to the Smart Justice Reform Podcast hosted by Anthony Grace. It's going to be available wherever you listen to your podcast at. And if not, then you can go to anthonybelieves.org and you can uh, subscribe there. So I need your support. We need to lift these stories, lift these voices so that we can all be heard. And uh, until then, stay tuned for the next episode. Support for this program is brought to you by the Digital Broadcasting Network, streaming podcasts and web series from everyday people who have an extraordinary passion to make the world a better place. Welcome to the next generation of broadcasting.